Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. My name is Ephraim Jude with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai We thank you for watching in all the ways that you do, either through our mobile app or live on Facebook. And from all the people across the globe that join us uh, here to be a part of this ministry, we thank you for inviting us into your home. If you're blessed by this broadcast, this free broadcast, we always ask that if the Lord would stir in your heart uh, to make a donation, uh, you can do so at llgive.com. Currently, right now, a couple of announcements that we have going on with the ministry right now. It's Friday, October 4th. We are in the days of awe between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur. This is a time in which people are doing a great deal of personal reflection uh, before coming to the uh, holiday known as uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, as you approach that um, appointed time, we have a special service that will uh, go live on Tuesday, October 8th at 7.30 in the evening, an Erev Yom Kippur service. You can watch, uh, watch that uh, either here on uh, whatever uh, you are watching this on, uh, whether that be the mobile app or on benishalom.tv, and we thank you for joining us for that appointed time. And then we're very excited as we are fast approaching the Feast of Tabernacles. There'll be many brethren. We're up uh, over right now. We're over, uh, I think uh, it was 1,080 about uh, that are joining us here in Chandler, Oklahoma, last that I checked. And if you're unable to join us for the Feast of Tabernacles, you can still watch our services. If you go to tabernaclesevent.com slash watch 2019, you can make a donation of any amount and give yourself access to watch our services that we will be broadcasting live from Chandler, Oklahoma, from the Feast of Tabernacles. So for anyone who's unable to join us there uh, from anywhere in the world, you can watch those services, and we thank you for joining us in that way as well. We pray that you are blessed here at this time of the year, at this season, and pray that you are encouraged and strengthened in your most holy faith by all the things that we do here at this ministry. Well, right now, let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Shine, do them, it's full of tough, fancy, 
you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafin Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. (laughs) Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Micha Mocha Baelim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachudesh Nohora Techilot Oh, Lord, among the gods. 
Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, l'adortam barit olam, b'nei avoyom b'nei Yisrael ot-hi le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha-Shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-Shavi Shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvechol Meodecha, Veheyu Hadevarim Haale Asher Nechime Zavcha, Hayom Alevavcha, Vashinantam Lavenecha, Vedepardabam Peshivtacha, Vietacha, Uvlatacha, Vedarech Ushakpika, Uvkumika, Ukeshatam La Ota Yadecha, Vaheyu La Totafolt Binanecha, Uketatama Mozuzo Batecha, Uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
You 
chapter 31, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, I will do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah ha-amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Vayelech, which uh, means, and he went, begins in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and where it says, then Moses went and spoke all these words to all of Israel. This Torah portion is the shortest portion in all of the Torah cycle. Uh, it only incorporates Deuteronomy chapter 31, and as we are coming to the end of the Torah cycle as a whole and the book of Deuteronomy, it almost has this feeling or the sense that every word that is spoken here almost has more weight, more impact, that you should, you should listen more carefully to every word that is being spoken. It's the same thing that if you were to uh, be by the bedside of a loved one who is at the end of their life, on their deathbed, about to pass away, and then whatever they say in that moment that you would be the most impactful thing, maybe the thing you should remember the most that that person ever said. And this is exactly what we have here for Moses as he is coming to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And these are the last words. These are the final things that he's saying between this week's portion and next week's portion where we will learn of the second song of Moses, where he gives us more words and instructions, things for us to remember and to live by so that we might remember the covenant that we have with God. And this is exactly what Moses is saying. Last week's portion, it specifically said that Lord spoke, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak these words to the children of Israel. I'm making this covenant with you, not just the ones who are present here, but, the, but speaking into the future. And God's words can do that. God's words are powerful that he can speak into the future. And it, all of those words are very important to, to us. When the Lord speaks, it carries some weight to it because it's the same voice that created everything and created the entire world. This week's portion is interesting because it's Moses' words. This is what Moses, I mean, after everything that Moses has done, everything that he has been from being the one who's called the greatest prophet to, of God, the one who was sent, who had a burning bush experience, sent to Egypt, delivered up the children of Israel out of Egypt, the, the humility that he had in every conflict situation to fall on his face instead of defending himself, the, everything that he ever did, now he was still a man, he still made mistakes, such as the fact that he struck the rock when he was told to speak to the rock and he, uh, he and he lost his ability to go into the promised land because of that and it, so that just proves that yes Moses was he was this larger than life man but he was still a man 
But that doesn't mean that the words that he speaks doesn't, doesn't have any weight to it. Uh, on the contrary, in fact, the words that he has to say are extremely impactful. Any time that you ever have amazing quotes from, from philosophers, from teachers, from, from, from pastors, from ministry leaders, those things all carry weight. Well, obviously, they don't carry the same weight as when God speaks, but sometimes us humans, when we communicate, sometimes we sort of respond better or differently than we do when it comes from a certain other person. Whenever God speaks, you, you might always question and wonder, well, is God really talking to me? Is that really God's words? I mean, is he really using a prophet to speak words into my life? And, and it seems like more so we carry, this is maybe the human trait of us, that we carry the weight of a human being, a man, who, was, who is an instrument of God, who is a messenger of God. Sometimes we don't hear what's being spoken unless it's being spoken by that guy. Rather than, you know, any other thing that might be the Lord speaking, uh, the, the, when it says the Lord said this, you know, we were like, well, I don't know, I'm going to have to test that out. But then a man speaks or a pastor says something and then we're all like, ooh, I like that. That's kind of our human nature that tends to respond differently to whoever is the one who's speaking to us. So we should, in my counsel, never take the words of a man over the words of God. At the same time, God uses men to speak through them. So when that person speaks, when it says that, that, that when the Lord actually gives that person an opportunity to share everything that is going on in their life, their experience, their testimony, sometimes it's the words of the testimony of a person that has the greatest impact on certain people. Everybody's different. Everybody, the Lord speaks to everybody in different ways. And so one, one of the things in our personal walk, we're always looking for how does the Lord speak to us? And so if it takes the counsel of a, of a trusted friend that before you'll hear something, you know, when you have family members that say, oh, man, you really need to go to a doctor. You're not doing so good. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then finally things get so bad that then they go to the doctor and say, oh, the doctor said this is what I need to do. And it's like, I told you that's what you needed to do a week ago, but you won't hear it unless it's coming from a doctor. Everybody's different in their own way. And so we have to know and understand how does the Lord speak to us? How does he communicate to us? And in, at least in the biblical narrative, there's a great many times in which the Lord uses a prophet of God to speak through and speak to the people. And the words that are given here by Moses are extremely encouraging, extremely encouraging for what we need. Sometimes the exact uh, the, the pep talk that we need before we're going, going to go do something that is very difficult. So if we start reading here in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses is given a little bit of a preamble today as to, to who he is. I mean, before he speaks, he's, he's recognizing that this, these are his words. And it says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you and shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. Let me stop there at verse 3. This is Moses. Once again, he's, he's recognizing that he is not allowed to go into the promised land. He pleaded with the Lord in the first part of the book of Deuteronomy to go into the promised land. And it's the Lord said, no, I'll hear none of that. And then here he's recognizing, look, I can no longer go in and come out. We're, you're about to go and cross over into that land, and this, this is where I'm going to depart. This is where I can no longer continue to be the leader of the children of Israel. 
It's also very interesting that he recognizes his age at 120 years old today, that this is the age by which he was when he died. Very fascinating that knowing that, okay, so 40 years in the wilderness, that they were judged, you go back, and so this is how we know exactly that Moses was 80 years old when the Exodus happened, and that obviously some of the most amazing things that ever happened to him in his life happened after he was 80 years old. That should be an encouragement to anyone who ever had to wait a long period of time for the Lord to do something in their life or to fulfill his promises. Sometimes the people of God have to wait for the Lord to fulfill his promises. That's the same teaching going back to Abraham that he was called when he was 75 years old and had to wait 25 years before his promised son was delivered to him at the ripe old age of 100. So sometimes we need to, we're encouraged just by the testimony of a person in the age that they were and that, you know what, if you ever feel or question like the Lord hasn't used you to your full potential yet, wait a little while. That's what Moses had to do. That's what Abraham had to do. And so that, that it's in and of itself can be an encouragement to us. It's also fascinating. It says 120 years. The one time we've heard that before is goes, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 6 at verse 3, which was the judgment upon man after, uh, after um, Noah and the flood, and that there was then the, the uh, judgment that was upon that after Noah had made sacrifices to God and that he was like that he was no longer going to judge the world with water and he gave him the bow in the sky as a sign. But then God said something very particular to Noah and said, I will not, for man is mortal, I will not strive with man for longer than 120 years. It's fascinating, that whole phrase. There's a whole mystery as to why, what was the deal with that number? Why is 120 years so significant? Well, some have thought and have interpreted that that 120 years, that truly we live in an age and a time in which God will not allow a man, an individual man, to live longer than 120 years. In our modern times, with all of our recorded history and recorded information, we, uh, whenever you see anything about the world's oldest man, whether it's the Guinness Book of World Records that's telling it to you, you don't see any stories of somebody truly living longer than 120 years. I think the last one I saw was like 111 years old that some, some guy was, and, uh, and everything's, this is how long our lifespan, this is the, the top end, the ceiling that our lifespan can last. Obviously, that's not the average age of a man, but we see that it's uh, be very difficult or a, a huge expectation, a miracle, if you will, if someone were to live even that long. And so you can look at it very plainly and says, hey, lifespans of human beings don't, don't extend past 120 years. just doesn't happen. It's interesting that there were men that lived longer than that after the judgment given to Noah, but then it kind of culminates in Moses' life that Moses was perhaps the last man that lived as long as 120 years. That's been theories that have been uh, given as well. But it's also there's a deeper prophecy in all of this where it goes to the future prophetic implication of how long God will strive with man, mankind in this current age. When we believe that the Lord will return in the year 6,000, and that the Scripture says that one day is a thousand years, thousand years is one day. In the story of creation, we have the story of six days of creation, and you can parallel those to the 6,000 years of recorded history from the creation to Noah to the Messiah and all the way to where we have where we live today, where we think the world is approximately 6,000 years old. 
and that the Lord will return in, in, in the year 6,000. That's one of the reasons why many of us believe we have to be near the, being the last generation. If the, if the prophecies are interpreted correctly, the Lord will return soon and we'll have a now a thousand-year reign with the Lord, just as there was a seventh-day Sabbath in creation. There will be a Sabbath of millennia in the thousand-year millennial reign with the Lord. We're all looking forward to that. The interesting thing is if you think that the world has, will be around for 6,000 years when the Lord returns, you actually, if you divide that up and you find out that there's actually the jubilee years, every 50 years there's a jubilee year, in the span of 6,000 years there's exactly 120 jubilee years in that span of time. And so you could look in a deeper prophecy of that 120 years is to say the Lord will not strive with mankind for 120 jubilee years in the current state of the creation. So this number 120 is fascinating when you look at it in the year's time and as if the, the age of man that we will be in the, our present state for this amount of time. But we're, of course, looking forward with a hope for the future, for an eternal life with the Lord and to be in the kingdom with him. So I pray that our life be long, that we find our name in the Lamb's book of life, and that we might uh, be able to uh, get close to the age that Moses lived until. And that would be an amazing blessing, an amazing testimony of one's life. Obviously, this is Moses' testimony that we're talking about here. Here he's encouraging the brethren, of course. Once again, we're saying the same things we've heard many times in the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to cross over this land. You're going to go in. You're going to dispossess all the nations that are there. This is going to be the job. This is going to be the task. This is the promised land. But you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to work for it. And the Lord is now going to put Joshua in charge in the lead of the children of Israel to go and do these things. So the encouragement continues in verse 4 of, 30, of chapter 31. And the Lord will do to them, the ones that you cross over to dispossess, as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites in their land. Remember, this is the reminder of these were the giants that you guys wiped out over on this side of the Jordan. Yeah, you're going to go in and you're going to wipe them out too. Remember, the report came back that there were giants in the land. Well, it's a good thing children of Israel already have a history and have set the precedent that they're capable of defeating giants when the Lord is on their side. So we're going to go in. Yeah, there might be giants in the land, but we're going to do to them just like we did to the last giants we ran into. And, he and the Lord destroyed them. Verse 5, the Lord will give them over to you that you may not do to that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded to you. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. This is the encouraging words. This is Moses giving his, his pep talk like a coach trying to tell a team before a big game. What, this is what, be strong, be courageous. You can go and do it. You can dispossess them. The Lord will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So let's go take the land. That is the, the pep talk that you can hear. And as you're reading between the lines and, and you could see the passion behind somebody who would be saying these words. Here's the thing about all of that. When it says you're going to go and do these things, he never said it would be easy. Never said it would be easy. You're going to do these things. The Lord is going to cause them to, 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 to dis, dispossess the people, and you're going to take, defeat them as you did with other enemies that we've faced before. It doesn't say how long, exactly how long it's going to take. It doesn't say how many men of war are going to die in the process. It doesn't say any of those things. It doesn't give those details. He never said it would be easy. It just said you'll be capable of doing it. 
And that's the encouragement that we should have in all things that we do in our lives is that life, life isn't easy sometimes. It's really not. Anybody who is trying to tell you that life is easier, life can be easier, and we're trying to sell you something that will make life easier is just not a realist when it comes to God has given this, us this life, but he's in the business of testing his people, challenging his people to see if they will do what he has said to do. Constantly, he's checking your heart to see, what are you going to do in this situation or that situation? I'm going to, I, here's the promises. The Lord has promised you, you're going to do this. You're going to be the leader of this one day. You're going to, you're going to grow into stature and you're going to be a great man among the people or a man among the community. He's not giving you the details of the amount of work you've got to put in to get there. That's something you have to learn for yourself. And that's also something that the Lord will allow you. Sometimes he will afford you the opportunity to even fail in the process of doing what you need to do. God's in the business of testing his people. And so he's, but he'll give you the encouragement you need. He'll give you all the tools you need to do it. He'll give you the pep talk too to say, yeah, you, you go and do this. This is, this is right here for you. Oh, you just got to take it. The Lord will be with you. He won't forsake you. Be strong. Be courageous. Go and do these things. And then you can. This is the, this is the spiritual nature of words when, there are, when they are spoken. As we're coming to the end of the book of, of Devarim, which are words, that we're talking about the power of words that when you speak, you're, you're speaking something into existence. And when you're speaking something that is encouraging or empowering or strengthening to somebody in their spirit. Now, when you say somebody be strong and courageous, does that immediately put courage in them? Does that immediately increase their muscle mass and the ability to actually lift, lift weight and, and, and do more than maybe one who is weaker than them? No, of course not. It doesn't work that way. But what you're invoking when you speak those words is you're invoking one's will to take over a situation so that they can do and accomplish things that they normally even wouldn't be able to do. Because when you think about it, somebody who's smaller than another person, a, a tiny little person and a giant, can the little person defeat the giant? On paper, of course they can't. But with the right kind of words, the right kind of encouragement, the right kind of spiritual influence in that situation... Yeah, little guys can defeat giants. It happens all the time. It happens in – give me a story in which there's a giant that doesn't get defeated by the little guy. This is David and Goliath. This is uh, – but, but even any other story in, in which that there's giants, there's always some sort of hopeful story of how they can be defeated by even the, the littlest one. Take the Jack and the Beanstalk for a, a, of all stories. These are the, – the, the idea of any time that there's a giant in front of you – the hope, the dream, the story, the, the, the way this story is supposed to go is that giant is going to be defeated. We're going to root for the underdog, and we're going to over, overcome all odds that they can defeat them. How is that possible? It's because it's something spiritual in nature. It's a hope. It's an encouragement. It's a, it's a something deeper down inside that is bigger than every situation that exists in the heart of the person who is about to face that giant that allows for the giant to be defeated. This is what these words can do. This is why, you know, philosophically, we talk all the time about staying positive. Stay positive. You know, the, the person that says, the, the phrase I've heard is the person that says they can and the person who says they can't are both right. Because once they speak that into existence, they then will be defeated in their own heart and their own mind, and they will never be able to challenge, the, uh, to channel the will of their being to accomplish anything. 
This is what it is, and this is why we encourage people. This is why we stay positive. And this is why, you know, we, we want to do this when we're raising children. We want to do this when somebody is sitting there and they say, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. It's too hard. But the power of words can cause somebody to overcome even the most hardest of, of things. I, I can think of many times in my life when there was a certain situation where I didn't think I was going to be able to get it done. And now maybe it might have been back in school when I had some big test or some big project that I needed to finish. And I had to stay up all hours of the night because I procrastinated and then I needed to get it done. But you know what? I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I can't remember the specific instance, but you know what? I got through it. That's done. It's already passed. And how did I get through it? Well, there was, it was either an encouragement, it was, a, it was a prayer, it was me asking the Lord to help me through a certain situation. And how many times has the Lord helped you through a situation that you thought was insurmountable? I bet there's many times in your life that that's happened. Through the power of prayer or through the power of, of a counselor or an encourager, you've been able to overcome things in your life. Why do we, we should never downplay the power of what it is to say something encouraging the way Moses is doing for the children of Israel right here. The other thing that's interesting when, of course, the, the, the leadership of the children of Israel is being transferred to Joshua. I love, it, it, it's, almost, it's almost too easy to make this comparison, but Joshua shares the same name as the Messiah. Joshua, Yahushua, it's the same name, same meaning as Yeshua. It's, it's, it means salvation, the salvation of God, and that th th this is saying that, okay, we have Moses and we have Yeshua. In the Messianic movement, that's exactly what we have. We have Torah teaching and instructions of Moses, and we have the testimony of salvation through the Messiah, Yeshua. And so when any time you see here, and you're talking about Moses transferring something to Joshua, it's a rule of thumb that there's something messianic going on here. Of course it is. And so the leadership of the children of Israel is being transferred to Joshua. And it's Joshua and it's the salvation of God that is going to get the people to the promised land. Moses isn't taking them to the promised land. Yeshua is. Joshua is. This is the shortest teaching you can give for salvation. That Moses, his instructions, his words, do they get you to the kingdom? Do they get you to the promised land? No, they get you, they, they get you all the way up to, uh, up to the point. But it's the salvation of God that gets you there that actually allows you to cross over. And this is the, the argument that people might make and that, that when it comes to salvation and it comes to we all want to go to the promised land. The promised land is always an allegory for the afterlife, eternal life, the kingdom, heaven, whatever you want to call it. And that to get to that place, to get to that place, we need salvation. We need salvation from all the things and the mistakes that we've made. We need salvation from the things that would come against us, that would, that would kill us before we get there. And believe you me, Joshua embodies this idea of salvation necessary to go into the promised land. Moses, are, you, you are, we are not saved. We taught for, in this ministry for many years. That, you are, that, that obedience of the commandments does not give you salvation. It gives you blessing. It gives you health. It gives you interac peaceful interactions between you and your brethren and your relationships between you and the brethren and you and God. And that you keep yourself holy and clean and pure because you don't sin. You don't sin against God. You don't sin against other brethren who will then hate you subsequently for sinning against them. And you don't sin against yourself that will cause yourself to make harm. So all those different types of sin. Those things cause curses that come upon your life. But that's not the determining factor on whether you're alive or dead and ready to cross into the kingdom. 
No, it's, it is the salvation of God and his sacrifice that gives you salvation and allows for you to go into the kingdom. Moses only gets you so far. The commandments of Moses does not make you saved. This is the, the, this is the short teaching of why it was Joshua that took him into the promised land and not Moses. The teachings of Moses are the foundation for everything that we need, that all the, 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 the uh, prophecies of the Torah point to the Messiah, point to the need of the Messiah. And ultimately, it's the Messiah, the one that leads you and takes you to the promised land. This is the short teaching of Joshua and the meaning of his name and why Moses was unable to take them into the promised land. In verse 7, I love the way this shifts, because Moses was just now speaking to the children of Israel. Now he turns and he speaks to Joshua in the hearing of all of Israel. It says this, Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. This encouragement obviously went to all the people. Be strong and courageous. Then he turned to Joshua and had a very individual encouragement for him that says, be strong and of good courage. This is what you are going to do. And you can see the shift here. And I love some of this language here because where it says this, that it's like you must go in with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. This people, you can see him talking to Joshua and you can see him, you know, gesturing vaguely toward all the group of people and say, you are going to take all of this people into the land. Now, the thing is, is this isn't we have some history with these people. These are the people that have the history of grumbling, complaining, rebelling against the Lord, um, not obeying what the Lord has said. It's already been prophesied these people are going to go into the land and then they're going to go, their eyes are going to lust after the idols of the nations. And there's already future prophetic judgments that are going to come upon them because they're not going to obey the Lord. And I can kind of see Moses talking to Joshua and saying, Joshua, be strong, be courageous, because you have to go with these people into the promised land. <laughs> These people, you know, the ones that had to rebel, you know, the ones that, that, that they, they complained and grumbled and they got me so frustrated, I wouldn't hit a rock when I wasn't supposed to. You have to go with these people. Now, Joshua, my, you know, if, being the good leader, we don't see anything in the scripture that says that Joshua was hesitant in taking this leadership role. But you can only imagine that he's sitting like, whew, now it's my job now, you know. Oh, once again, not saying it was going to be easy. I'm not saying that, 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 that you leading this particular group of people, you know, this group of people that used to be slaves, and then there's a bunch of them now that grew up in the wilderness and don't know what it's like to live in cities with judges and things. We've given all the instruction on how to do that, but they don't know how to do it, and you have to lead them. Joshua's like, yep, there's a, there's a lot to do. I'm going to need strength. I'm going to need courage. I'm going to need everything that the Lord has to give to me. It's not going to be easy, but this is what I have to do. Once again, the encouragement going straight to Joshua, these people is who you get to lead. Now, this, of course, is the chosen people. These are the people of God and that we are show, living by an example that if we can get these people to follow the commandments of God, then the rest of the nations will be easy. Remember, we're raising up a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of people who are going to be the intercessors between God and the nations. That's what the role of Israel was supposed to be. 
So these guys, so all of Israel is counting on the rest of the rest of the nations is counting on Israel to get this right. And Joshua, you get to lead all of it. Now we need the encouragement and the strength of the Lord to accomplish those things. Uh, something also very interesting about this language here, and this is instruction for us, anyone who is a parent of a child or anyone who has ever opportunity to teach anybody anything who is to raise up anybody, whether you're, a, whether you're an employer and you uh, are raising up an employee one time to take your job or to take your position, always train your replacement, or whatever you might do, in any sort of situation that you are the leader of something, there's a very fascinating um, pattern that we have to follow right here in these words where it says this, you shall cause them to inherit it. Very interesting. You, you, I might have read that you know, quickly and you might read that over, but think about those words for a minute then. Cause them to inherit it. Well, when you think of an inheritance, you might think of, a, let's say you have a wealthy father and maybe he's about to die or maybe he's going to give an early inheritance and he's going to have his son and he's going to give his son an inheritance. You know, the, the family riches, the, the, what belongs to the father and then he's going to give it as an inheritance to his son. Does it work? Does it really work? Or, or can you, you fathom the scenario where it really, really works to where the father just gives the son the whole fortune, gives him the keys to the car, gives him all these things, and that suddenly this son is going to know exactly what to do with all those things. He's going to be very wise with all of the money and all of those things. And that if we just give it to him, everything's going to be great, right? For that kid, for his life, or anything like that. Does, does that all work normal, uh, normally that way? Actually, you sit there and you question, you're like, oh my gosh, well, we need to consider the character of the person that's inheriting all the money because some kids, if they're not taught to take care of it, man, he'll blow all of that money in, in a year's time. He'll go wreck the, wreck the car. He'll go do this. And it's like, guess what? The entire family heritage, the, the inheritance that belonged to a family and all the family's riches could get spent and, and squandered in a, matter of, in a matter of years and then have nothing if the child is not ready to receive that inheritance. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, this, this might not be the best situation to always have inheritance just given to people. No. See, the best situation would be this. That person, that child who is going to receive the inheritance, they are strengthened. They are taught. They are educated what to do with these things. That to almost that you would teach them in a way that they would earn the inheritance that was given to them. You know, almost that a father, if a father is going to say, I'm going to withhold the inheritance from you until you prove to me that you will do good by it, that you're not going to be somebody who's consumed with the greed and the money and having all this power and all this wealth and all these things. No, I, you, you've got to prove to me that you've earned the inheritance. But there's another layer to that as well, because it says there the encouragement to Joshua, cause them to inherit it. This is the instruction of for fathers to teach their sons. It's a father's job to teach his child, to teach him those things. How is a child going to earn the inheritance if they're not educated on how to do it? And where's that teaching going to come from? Their father. If there is a child who has not earned the, the, the right or does not have the respect to, to give, be given an inheritance and they have not lived their life in a way to where that they should... Uh, uh, that they should receive an inheritance, that they can be trustworthy with money and blessing and with all of these things, whose fault is it? Ultimately, 
going all the way back, that that child was not raised in a way they're not ready to receive it. Whose fault? Is it the child's fault? We can sit there and we can maybe justify from one situation to another that maybe there was an adult child who made plenty of mistakes in life that was no fault of anybody else's except for his sheer stupidity. And sure, there's situations that we all make that that would be the reason why we're not worthy of, a, of an inheritance. But ultimately, if you go down to it, before you get to that point where you're able to make those mistakes, isn't it a father's job to teach his child? That the father... His job is to cause his child, raise him up, teach him in a way so that he does earn the inheritance. Ultimately, it goes upon the leader's responsibility. And the same thing where if you are asked to train your replacement at a certain job because you're about to get promoted, but then that department completely falls apart because you didn't teach the person who's replacing you in the way that you're supposed to teach them for them to do that job and to earn the, their paycheck and for that job to get done, ultimately, it's the supervisor's fault. It's the supervisor's fault for that not to be the case. We must learn in any situation that we find ourselves in, and I will learn it with my children and every father and every person in leadership, that your job as the leader with the responsibility for the people that are under your care that you've been entrusted with, cause them to inherit the blessing. You have to teach them in a way to receive it. You have to, you have to explain it in ways that, that, that make sense so that they can inherit it. Ultimately, that falls upon the leader, and that's exactly what Moses says to Joshua. It's very subtle right there, but it, there, it is profound for all of us that might find ourselves in any position of leadership Ultimately, captain goes down with the ship. It's the captain's responsibility for every person under their care. And to, if they're going to be successful in life, it's the leader who has to lead either by, lead by example and to be the one who teaches and educates them for them to be successful. Cause your children to inherit the blessing. This is what Joshua's job was. Now, ultimately, you could say that maybe Joshua failed because the children of Israel were a stubborn and stiff-necked people, but every leader has, their, has the mistakes. But you will say, show this. In the book of Joshua, the children of Israel, they did inherit the land. They did. They dispossessed the nations. There were battles that were fought. Mistakes were made along the way. But ultimately, when it's all said and done, Joshua did lead the people in his lifetime, to take possession of the land so that then the judges could be raised up in leadership. But then we have the, all the ups and downs of all the different ones that were in leadership, whether it be in the judges or in the kings. And that, but still, you look to it and you say, well, there's good kings, there's bad kings. There's good rulers, there's bad rulers. Each one, again, the leader is responsible for the kingdom, for what the kingdom did, for what the people did. When they went whoring after other idols, who was in charge? Under whose watch did those things happen? This is what we have to do. Now, we, we all have the opportunity when in leadership, are we going to be a good king? Or are we going to be a bad king? Are we going to cause the, the next generation after us, teach them, educate them to inherit the blessings that will carry on from generation to generation? Or are we going to make mistakes? Are we going to start generational curses that are going to that are have the, the the downs in life? This is the responsibility that we have to teach the people. As the passage continues on, there's a few more. Uh, there's another instruction that's that's reiterated here in Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse nine, that goes into the recounting of the law, that the law is to be read 
every seven years. This goes into the natural tactics that are necessary by which we learn to follow the commandments of God. How are you going to follow the commandments of God if you don't know what they are? Well, I read them one time. Well, do you remember every single one of them? Well, uh, well no. I mean, I, can you recount all 613 commandments right now? No, of course you can't. So one of the things we need is sometimes we need some tactics that will help us to remember the law and the commandments. In ancient times, they did not have their own personal copies of the Bible. There wasn't multiple versions, and you can't go down to the, to the store and go buy a brand new Bible large print, small print, note-taking Bible, whichever version you want. They didn't have that opportunity back in those days. In fact, literacy was questionable at best as far as to whether anybody could even read any of the written languages that existed at the time. So one of the things that was absolutely necessary is the commandment to read the law. We've already set up and had instructions for the setting up of memorials and monuments to remember the laws of the covenant. Remember all the words of the law were to be written on whitewashed stones, so you could go there and you could read them there, and that there were certain ones that were recounted at different times, say these words, speak these words, so that we remember the commandments. Well, ultimately it boils down to this, something, a, a very specific commandment to do. Every seven years at the sabbatical year, at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is what was to be done. Let me read the specific instruction here. Verse 9, so Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the, co of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time, at the year of release, that was the, year, uh, the sabbatical year, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women, the little ones, the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land where you cross the Jordan to possess. This is the instruction. For the reading of the law, that when there's children that grow up, anyone who's younger than the age of seven, there's a chance they haven't ever heard the reading of the law. So, at one of the appointed times, when we're commanded to come and join and appear before the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles, the word is read. Every seven years, the words in the book of the law, and this is a tradition that has happened at our Feast of Tabernacles and at other ones that I know of, is that every seven years, when we believe the sabbatical year to be, we will take the entire book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1, all the way through Deuteronomy 34, and we will read the entire book of the law. In the hearing of all the people, when we're all in the main assembly and we're all gathered together to listen to the words of the law, we're commanded to do it. Why? A couple of reasons. One, this is the repetition of how we teach our children. We teach them by reading it to them, by telling it to them, by instructing them. We do this on a regular basis as well. When we do the Torah cycle and we do these Torah teachings on a weekly basis, we are teaching the law as we know it to be as best that we can interpret it from the Word of God <coughs> Excuse me, and sharing it on a weekly basis so that we might be teaching all people that would come and hear. And then in addition to that, when the Feast of Tabernacles rolls around on the sabbatical year, we will read the entire word in case you missed something. And how many times do you read an entire passage of Scripture and then you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if I heard that verse before. And you might go back and you reread it and be like, sure enough, there, there's a, a phrasing or a wording or somebody reads it in a different version and suddenly something is new and powerful that comes out of nowhere even though you might have heard it before. 
This is what can happen when the scripture is read. This is what happens when the word of God, which is powerful, that, you know, yesterday, same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that God can declare the ends from the beginning. And the words are powerful when you hear these things. It's, this is the ongoing teaching and instruction that every seven years you're going to learn something new when you hear this word. The other thing about it being every seven years, a couple of interesting reasons for that. One, the sabbatical year, that was kind of a big deal when somebody was released from their debts, the year of release. Having a full understanding of what is involved with that year of release is probably a pretty important thing. The ones who are in debt up to their eyeballs needs to hear the words that says, hey, this is what you now are released from. And the people who are the loaners and the lenders have to know, look, you have to release them from this. This is the law. This is the instruction. We're going to read these laws. And so before we have the year of release, which is to be read at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the year of Jubilee was declared on Yom Kippur, sorry, not the year of Jubilee, the sabbatical year, was declared on Yom Kippur, then that subsequent Feast of Tabernacles, five days later, yeah, let's, let, let's, let's pull out the books, let's, let's uh, go over the contract that we have with all people on what this year of release actually is. That's what it is. So that's very good to have every time that you're about to uh, perform that procedure and execute that particular commandment. The other thing that's maybe more scientific and more philosophical is this. Have you ever heard the phrase, that every cell in your body changes every seven years? That as we grow, our, our skin cells, they, they die off, they flake off, and, every, and, and cells regenerate inside of our bodies, that even our bones, they continue are in a state of either growth, regrowth, absorption into the body, and that after seven years, every cell in your body is different and changed. Science will tell you that, that physically, all the cells have changed. This also lends itself to the pattern of sevens that God has in our cycles of life. I've heard it said also that every seven years your taste buds change. So if there's ever been a food that you don't like and maybe you just like, ah, oh, yeah, I don't like, uh, I don't like onions on things or whatever. Well, when was the last time you had onions on anything? Oh, it's been years. I haven't had, an, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years or something like that. Try them again. See, see if your taste buds have truly changed, because every seven years your taste buds change. If you have, have a food that you haven't had in seven years, give it a try. See if you like it now, because that's what happens with change. That's exactly what happens. And you can imagine there's foods that you hated as a child that you actually enjoy now as an adult. That's because things change over time. Now, that's a simple example, but ultimately there, there's a deeper understanding of all of this. If you are a completely different person in the cycle of life and regeneration of your body after seven years, yet you are still willing to commit to a covenant that maybe you made seven years ago, then that means that even as a new person, you are still committed to the things of old. You're still committed to the, the, the vows that were made and, and, and were said. Because this is the other thing about seven years that I've heard. And here's another phrase that's just you'll hear uh, in the secular world as time goes on is this, that um, married couples who last past seven years are then 98 percent uh, chance that they stay together forever. You know, that if, you know, because in this country, especially in the world today, marriage, divorce happens all the time. People are married for for you know, short amount of time, two years, two months, and then they get divorced, file irreconcilable differences, and then they leave and they walk away from each other. You know, this happens all the time, and it's too bad that the true covenant of marriage has just become this, like, basic contract agreement that two people make in this day and age rather than there being any sanctity to truly what that covenant represents, which is a pattern of our relationship between us and God. 
That's not the point of what I'm talking about here. The idea is this, is that when a covenant is made, and if you're, you change over time and you've made a commitment to one person and to love them and to care for them, and after seven years, every cell in your body has changed, but you still love that person and you're still committed to that person, then you're talking about a good covenant now, aren't we? We're talking about a good relationship. We're talking about a true commitment to this person. Even when everything else in your body, when your body has died unto itself, you're still committed to this one thing and this one cause. That's a commitment that goes deeper than, than, than skin deep. That's a commitment that's deeper than your, than your physical being or, or you know, a physical attraction for somebody. That's the spiritual nature of your soul and your spirit that's connected to that person, even though your entire body has died and changed in seven years' time. This is the commitment that we should have in all of those things is that, you know, this is also a marriage counseling advice for people who are married. Every seven years, you know, that you do kind of reach a, there's a moment in every marriage relationship that it's like, you know, you're coming, look at how long you've been married. If you've been married for six years and you're going on your seventh year, Sometimes that's a hard year of marriage. You're kind of you're kind of struggling with one another. You're fighting for one another. That's because there's there's something physical inside your body that might be fighting against the idea that you are spiritually connected to this person, but your physical body is maybe lusting after something else, lusting after more power, or maybe somebody else that your 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 your, your physical uh, being is wanting to sin and break this covenant. But if you're able to fight all of those urges and all of those temptations that kind of rear their ugly head every seven years or more often than that, then you're able to maintain your commitment. We operate in seven-year cycles. We live and we grow in seven-year cycles. A seven-year-old is very different than a five-year-old. And there's a, there's a, there's a noticeable change in the per- – that's when a personality of a child develops is around seven years old. Truly a personality. And then at 14 years old, that's when you're talking about the average age of puberty, that it's like, yeah, their body's majorly changing at 14 years old around that time. And then 21 years there's a, is a major milestone in life. 28 years is suddenly you are absolutely not a, not a child or a young man anymore. You are a full-grown man and woman when you say when you're about 28 years old. We all live and operate in seven-year cycles. This is the plan that God has made, the perfect plan that he has for us in our lives. And so in the process of all of this, we have to understand these cycles. We have to reiterate the words of the law, the covenant. Do you want to still be in covenant with God seven years from now, three years from now? Do you still want to be in covenant with God? If you've made that commitment, if you want to be in covenant, if you're still on the fence about that, well, then I'm, I would encourage you to, to you got to seriously answer that question. If you want to continue in this commitment with God, well, then you're in it for the long haul. And that means you're going to follow his commandments and his words, and you're going to feed his word into your life on a regular basis. You're going to be reading your Bible daily. You're going to be getting the instruction on a weekly basis, celebrating the Sabbath with your brethren. And you are going to every seven years that you are going to sit and you are going to listen to the words of this law. And you're going to let those words speak into you. Even if you've read it more times than, than, than that, even if you, you read it, uh, one, every once in a while, every couple of months, every year you, you read it. No, but when you sit there at the seven-year mark of your life and you allow that commandment to be fulfilled in your life, you are reinitiating the commitment you have to the covenant between you and God because you're obeying his word. That's what is going on here. This is God, God made us. God knows how we are. 
God knows that, 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 we, that, that teenagers get crazy at about the age of 14. Girls usually get crazier than boys at that time. Boys are crazier at seven than girls are, but, you know, that just sort of flip-flops the genders and the way all that works. But God knows, our, knows the nature that we have. Knows that at 21 years old, you've got somebody who's really wanting to strike out at their own. This is that at 21 years old, everybody thinks that your parents are, are nuts and dumb and that you're the smartest person in the world when you're 21 years old. Only by about 28, you realize how wrong you were. This is just the cycle of life. This is just the things that we experience throughout all these things. The Lord knows this. And the Lord says, though, remember my covenant. Remember my word. Speak these words so that you might hear them. Once again, one more thing to remember in the hopes that we keep the commandments of God. Because once again, as Deuteronomy, the last half of Deuteronomy 31 continues... Once again, more judgments are, are predicted and are prophesied over the children of Israel that they still, though, will reject the covenant. What more can you do? What more can we have between everything that has been said? What, what, what has been said? Is there any more that can be said? Is there any more uh, uh, tips, tricks, uh, ways to keep the commandments and to remember these words? We simplify it down to choose life and, and, and choose, choose one, death or life. Pick one. We simplify it down to set it up, you know, copy these things here and read them on a regular basis so you remember these words, hear them every seven years. Is there anything more we can do to remember the covenant or is now is the ball in our court? I actually submit after everything that we've done going through this year of, of, of Torah, I think the ball's in our court. What are you going to do? What are you going to believe? We can continue to share blessings. Or we can tell you the curses you'll have if you disobey. And once again, there, there, there's more of this. It, it, it says here as, as uh, Moses is inaugurating Joshua, and he brings them in before the tabernacle and in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord sp speaks to Moses. We'll go verse 16 here. Behold, you will rest with your fathers. This people will rise and play the harlot with gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant and I ha that I have made with them. And my anger shall be aroused against them in this day. And I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them. And they will say in that day, Have not these evils come, up, come upon us because God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face from them in that day because all the evil which they have done. And they have turned to other gods. You know, the encouragement started with, I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. But if you leave me, I will turn my face away from you. And so when people might say and say, man, is there really a God amongst these people? I thought this was the people that God was with them. No, actually the precedent is, is that sometimes when you are disobedient, God does turn his face away from you. God is, you know, we, we say encouraging wise, God's always watching out for you. But when you're screwing up, when you're making a mistake, when you're following after other gods and things that God did not command you to do, God will turn his, hide his face from you. Now, will you be able to survive that? Eh, maybe. But the other thing, too, is in those situations, that is when, if God's not watching out for you, that's when even more terrible things can happen. The sins, the things, the mistakes that you make can lead to your death. Uh, we know they lead to curses. We know that they lead to bad things. They know they lead to judgments. They know they lead to, to mistakes and, 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 and issues between you and your brethren. When you sin, 
And, but when you sin, you are bringing in something that is unclean, and God will not bring his presence into the presence of anything that is unclean. That's when God truly will, and you will feel like you're abandoned. You will feel like you're forsaken, because in your sin and in your mistakes, that's what God said he would do. The point that we should all make, the thing that we should all do, is to turn and repent of the mistakes that we've made so that we can come back into the presence of God. That's the reason for the sacrificial system. That's the reason for the month of Elul. This is the reason for the days of awe. This is the reason for this particular time of year for us to turn and repent from the sins that we have made so that God will once again turn his face upon us and we will not be forsaken. He said he would never leave you nor forsake you. What it is, is that is a permanent blessing. The God hiding his face from you is a temporary curse that it is your responsibility to change. You get to decide how temporary that curse is. If that's a curse that you want to live with for the rest of your life, with a sin that you decide to commit every single day, or you make repentance and that temporary curse is, uh, the, the, the curse is lifted, and then God will remember you and will not forsake you. That's how both of these things can be true. You might sit here and say, he says, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then, uh, you know, a couple of verses later, uh, verse 17, it says, I will forsake them. So which is right? Believe you me, God has a power for both of those things to be right. When you are in the blessing of following his word, he won't leave you or forsake you. It's as permanent and it is as long-lasting as you are faithful to him and his covenant. But if you turn after other gods, he will turn his face away from you. Once again, the other thing, the other theme throughout all the verses that we've been covering here is all in the case of fear. Do not, be, do not have fear nor be dismayed. Don't fear the things that are coming. Don't fear the people in the land. Don't fear... All of these things that, 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 are going, that are going to happen. That, and just like the instruction there, that it's like that you are to hear this law so that your children may learn to fear the Lord your God. That's back in verse 12. This whole idea is to learn to understand what spirit are we to operate by. When you're following the Lord and put your all trust in him, any fear that you might have, turns from the fear of dread to the fear of awe in the power of God, and that you shouldn't fear anything else that is before you. Fear is something that you should turn over to the Lord. You should not have the fear of dread for anything else that this world has to, to throw at you. If you do so, then you're not operating with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God operates in the spirit of love. The spirit of love, perfect love, casts out fear, as it says in 1 John. So what it is, is that spirit of fear, we have to get rid of it. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, there are many people. That, fear is a big business in the world that we live in. Fear will make a lot of people give a lot of money to a lot of bad people. Fear will, make, will keep people under control of certain things and aspects and situations by striking fear in the people. This is what the mass media does, and it's like a, it's a control mechanism if you can put the fear in people. But that's the difference between God and the rest of the world. God says, give me your fear. I'm not putting fear in you. There's a, there's a healthy amount of fear that when a, a parent puts the fear of God into their child for them to obey, that's because he says, look, this is what I'm capable of doing to you. But ultimately, you're not to live in that fear and operate in that fear. 
What you have to do is you give that fear that you turn that fear of dread into the fear of the Lord and you listen and you obey to him. Unlike what the world would want to tell you and just say, oh, no, be afraid of everything. Be afraid for the world that is coming and all these things. This is how we put our trust in God. We give up, put all of our fear focused on him to obey his words. That's something that we're combating in all of these things. This is why we say these words. Be strong. Be courageous. So you are not fearful. Operate in the spirit of courage. Operate in the thought and the feeling and the spirit that you can accomplish anything that is laid before you. Any challenge that is in front of you. We can do it. I'm strong enough and I'm courageous enough to accomplish these things. So we're combating the spirit of fear in the course of all of these instructions. Now we do have... One more, another uh, instruction here, and this is leading into next week's Torah portion, is that one more vice, if you will, for us to remember the words of the law. One more thing for us to instruct our children and, and to do and to repeat, and that is a song, a song for Moses to, to, that he sang before the people, that he spoke the words of this song, that it reads like a poem, that it reads like a witness to keep the commandments of God. And that is what will follow in the next chapter, in chapter 32. And so we have the instruction for this song here at the end of our portion here, starting at verse 19. It says this, Now therefore write down the, this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that the song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, and they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today. So like I said, God knows how he made us to be. Even before I have brought them to this land which I swore to give to them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day, taught it to the children of Israel when he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun. And said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, Moses commanded the Levites, who bore the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and it may be a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today... While I am yet alive with you, you have, you have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death. Gather to me all the elders, your tribes, your officers, that I may speak the words in their hearing, these words in their hearing, and call heaven and earth as a witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which, the, which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. This is the preamble to the song and the teaching of next week's Torah portion. To where we will be given one more thing, one more way, the very last words that Moses can speak that would cause us to remember the covenant and not break it. Unfortunately, he knows that that's still what's going to happen, that even when Moses is around, they were rebellious even with Moses alive when they could see in the miracles that Mo Moses performed. He, Moses knows after he's gone, the nature of the people is, it's like, well, uh, I guess we're back to square one. I guess we can do whatever we want again, and they will turn to other gods. 
But he still gives a witness, something that will still last, that will still stand the test of time to prove that God is still faithful. There are those in the world that would like to consider and think that the words of this Bible, of this instruction, are, of no, are null and void. They have no use. They have no power any longer. And that we are constantly in a state of trying to prove that, does that really apply? Does that commandment, we hem and haw, and we try to justify the breaking of any commandment, anything that we might do. And there are people that stand up, and that's actually what they try to do. They stand up, some Torah teachers stand up on their pulpits and talk about how certain commandments just don't apply to us anymore. Why would we ever endeavor to compromise our faith and our belief in the Word of God by saying one of them doesn't matter? One word doesn't matter. That word, oh, that happens to be an idle word. We don't have to cover that one anymore. Well, what that is, is that's a, that's a crack in a dam. That's a, you, you let enough of those happen and the whole thing collapses. As a believer of God and a believer in the Word of God, you, can't, you must stand firm on these words. That when you see a commandment, sure, one that's confusing, one that doesn't make any sense anymore in this day and age, one we're talking about taking care of slaves and that kind of thing, and if we don't have slaves, why do we try to justify and eliminate the commandment rather than setting it aside to say, Lord, that commandment's in your hands. You are the one who has to teach and instruct us what the principle of it is. I don't understand it. I'm not going to stand up and say that it doesn't matter. I'm going to stand firm and believe that it is. Because there's witnesses to the fact that these words still stand the test of time. Heaven and earth are a witness. The written word and the recording of the words in the book that Moses put before the Levites. And there's plenty of history as to what that book was, where it was. And it was there in the temple in Jerusalem. It was there. It stands as a witness that these words still stand today. May I submit to you, and this would be my, my concluding thought is this. May we join with heaven and earth as witnesses of the word of God. We've read them. We've heard these words. Let us not be one, not, not, be, a, not be a false witness. Don't be a false witness of these words. I've read these words. And a false witness would say, well, uh, that one, yeah, that, that part's kind of weird. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, this one's important for you to follow. No, that's a false witness. May you be the witness that testifies every word of this law is for you today. It's for you to live by. It's instructions for you to live and believe in God, to be in covenant with God. <clears throat> that is what these words are for. May we be a witness of those things. Let there not be the need for a, something to witness against us because we've broken the commandments. Well, we've all broken the commandments, and these words testify to us breaking the commandments. But instead, let us carry our lives and our testimony to be a witness to others that this word is true, that this word produces blessing, that when you keep these commandments, it produces blessing. When you return to the Lord, when you make teshuvah, when you repent of your sins, you're blessed when it happens. You're blessed when you keep these holidays and these festivals. You're blessed when you go out to tabernacles and you keep that commandment to rejoice before the Lord in that season of joy. Keep the commandments and then be a witness and a testimony as to the goodness of God and the power of his word. Let us be a witness and not have, and not have the need for something to witness against us. Let that be the words that penetrate us here as we have studied now Deuteronomy chapter 31. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day for your teaching and your instruction. Father, as we come to the end of this Torah cycle and as we approach 
your appointed times, Father. Uh, may you just stir uh, new, new in us, Lord, everything that you have taught us. May all the words that have been spoken, whether we've read them before, whether we've read them many times before, Father, make them new, alive, and powerful to us in this Torah cycle, going into the next cycle, Lord. And every time that this Bible opens up, Lord, Father, may you reveal yourself to your people. Father, I pray that these words be as powerful. The same words that created the world, Father, has the ability to circumcise our hearts and change our minds and to change our lives. So, Father, may we never consider any of it to be idle in nature. May we never uh, set it aside to, to be uh, less than anything, Lord. Father, may we always give you all honor, power, and glory. May we never presume to know your nature, your power. For, Father, you know our nature. You know the mistakes we have made and will make, Lord. But you give us the means and you give us and you give us the choice, Lord, to choose you to follow the words of your covenant. Father, I pray that your people will make the right choice and will choose you over the ways of the world, we'll, we'll choose life over death, that we'll choose blessing over curse, that we'll choose love over fear, and we'll choose what is right in your eyes. Not in our own eyes, Lord, but in yours. So, Father, I thank you for these words and these instructions. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. In this place, it's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betochenu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat. Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 
gift from God. Put a smile upon your face. 